Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer this morning. Thank you for getting out and joining us uh, today for worship. The author and preacher A.W. Tozer uh, wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In the New Testament book of 1 John, it is the apostle John in this great letter who doesn't start from the premise that we might, of what we might like uh, from God, he starts with the premise of what God is like. And so I invite you to listen to the, his words. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God's light is so bright that there is no darkness in him. You know, these dark days of winter are tough on a lot of us and even more so if you have seasonal affective disorder, but we serve a God in whom there is no darkness. And so no matter what we're feeling inside today or what we're going through emotionally, know that if we focus on the Lord, we can live in the light. Let's pray together. God of light, awaken us today to the glory of your presence among us. Shine on us in such a way that the darkness without and the darkness within may be pushed back so that we may truly see what is real. Help us to recognize our sin for what it is. Enable us to see the world as you created it to be and as you created us to be. Empower us today to move from darkness to light, from sin to new life, and may your light within us shine through in our worship, in all that we do and say, and we pray it in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, even Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. We are in the third week of a new teaching series called A Tale of Seven Churches, and we're walking our way through uh, the the first three chapters of the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, And today we're in chapter two, beginning with verse eight, and we're gonna be talking about a group of Christ followers in a city called Smyrna that were suffering, suffering terribly for their faith and just maybe there are some lessons in their story that will help us deal with some of the tough issues that we face in our own life. Next week, we're gonna be looking at the church at Pergamum and hear what Christ says to a church that prides itself in being open-minded and tolerant of every viewpoint and every teaching. And in some ways, it's a lot like some churches today, maybe even some would say the United Methodist Church. So we're going to be Uh, looking at all of that uh, next week. I hope that you'll be here. And if you cannot be here, just a reminder that uh, we have a podcast on our website that you can go to and listen uh, to the service that you may miss. Let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Gracious God who gives to all of us uh, who ask, we invite you to provide for each of us today who are gathered in this place. Bless your people as we worship you. God, you have told us that you will reveal yourself to those who seek you, and we pray that you would show us yourself today. Plant deep within us a desire to know you more completely, for you are the one who opens doors to those who knock. 
So help us to step forward into your gracious presence, knowing that if, you, if we seek you, we will surely find you. Lord, stir us up so that we don't become self-satisfied and forget to keep asking and seeking and knocking. Give us faith to understand that through our prayers we can accomplish great things if we believe. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Being a Christian is not easy in many parts of our world today, and it's increasingly being coming unpopular even in parts of America. In many countries, if you speak up for your faith, you risk harassment and sometimes outright persecution. Here's what some students in Asia wrote. We often face situations in life that challenge our faith in the Lord when our family members or we ourselves face injustice, when we encounter health problems, when our non-believing family members die suddenly, when we see Christians whom we know and love uh, encounter bad things in their life or their family members' lives. Doesn't sound a whole lot different than life for many of us here, does it? When we encounter situations like this in our life, we often wonder, does the Lord really care about us? What is God's attitude toward all of these stressful situations in our life? How does he feel about them? When we see good people suffer, when we see tragedy happen, when we see innocent people harmed, we wonder why do such things happen? How does the Lord look at all of this? How should we face, how should we react to such things? You see, the problems of life are the same everywhere, despite the very great cultural differences between East and West, between the global North and the global South, the needs of the human heart are the same wherever we go. There are times when life just goes bad for all of us. The letter from Jesus to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse eight, helps us to think biblically about some of these struggles that we face in life, especially those struggles that, become, that come because of our Christian faith. If you travel about 40 miles north of Ephesus, that's the church that we talked about last week, you will come to a natural harbor that in the first century was home to the city of Smyrna. Today, Smyrna is called Izmir, a leading city in modern Turkey. And because of its location and its beauty, Smyrna was known as the ornament of Asia. In AD 26, a competition was held to determine which city would win the right to build a temple for the worship of Caesar. Smyrna won that contest and took great pride in its loyalty to the Roman Empire, surrounding the hill that dominated the cityscape that you would, you would find uh, numerous temples to various pagan de deities. And over time, a number of Jews migrated to Smyrna and became an important part of the business climate there. They bought and sold goods bound for Rome to the west and Persia to the east. Because of the prevailing paganism and because of the citywide emperor worship, Christians in Smyrna found themselves under unrelenting pressure. And once a year, the loyal citizens of Smyrna would be uh, forced to publicly declare that Caesar 
is Lord. And that's something that no faithful Christian could ever do. So the believers in Jesus found themselves unpopular and continuously criticized. To live in Smyrna meant that you were in this hotbed of not only Caesar worship, but pagan sacrifice. And as we'll see, that put the Christians at a distinct disadvantage. We should also note that Smyrna is one of the two churches in Revelation uh, for which our Lord has no words of rebuke. The other is the church at Philadelphia, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. The silence of our Lord is striking when you consider the harsh words that he has for some of the other nearby churches. It is not because of any false sympathy that keeps our Lord from rebuking them. There's a deeper reality at work here. Their suffering made them strong. It had stripped them of everything except Jesus himself. And here was a church that was obviously in trouble. Their enemies clearly had, had the upper hand. And seeing this beleaguered, uh, beleaguered uh, group of believers of, in Smyrna, Christ has nothing negative to say about them. So this short letter tells us something about this church, but it tells us much more about the Lord himself. So let's look at what we know about Jesus from his message to the suffering saints at Smyrna. Through these brief words, I think we're gonna find some things that encourage us in our own struggles. First of all, we find that Jesus knows our troubles. Look at verse eight and beginning of verse nine. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering. The word suffering or afflictions, as some translations put it, does not describe the ordinary troubles of life. It refers rather to what we might call catastrophic pressure. In other contexts, it was used to speak about a person who had been crushed by a massive boulder. When the sky falls in and around us, when all hope is lost, when darkness surrounds us and the enemy seems to be closing in, Jesus says, I know your suffering. I know your afflictions. And when I read that sentence, I think of the suffering that believers today, living in many parts of the world, uh, are facing. Brave Christians facing attacks from angry mobs or being hacked to death by fanatical non-Christian groups. These things are happening every day around the world and it has been so since the beginning of time and still true today. So Jesus knows our suffering. He knows our trouble. But Jesus also knows, this is the second thing, our poverty. The end of verse nine says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. These words are literal, not metaphorical. Christians in Smyrna evidently came from the lower rungs of the economic society. If there ever once uh, was a time when they were rich in worldly goods, those days were long past. No doubt many had lost their jobs in the trade guilds because they refused to say that Caesar is Lord. So to these poverty-stricken Christians, Christ says, but you are rich. And sometimes when I re we read that, we say, is he really mocking them? Not at all. 
but it depends on how we value time versus eternity. If this life is all that there is, then the words of Jesus are nothing more than pious nonsense. And what good is it to say, you are rich to a group of people who are starving? But no person who knows Jesus is ever truly poor, and no person without Jesus is ever truly rich. So what would we say about someone, uh, let's use an example from our own context, our own time. Let's say Steve Jobs. You all know who Steve Jobs is, the brilliant co-founder of Apple, the man who, uh, whose inventions helped change the world. And I'm sure that many of you uh, own an iPhone, some of you an iPad or a MacBook Pro. Millions of people download songs from iTunes. Uh, we store our data on the iCloud. We update Facebook and Twitter using Apple technology. All of that stems from the creative genius of a man who after his death left behind a multi-billion dollar fortune. And even while confessing our debt to Steve Jobs, let me point out that phrase left behind. He left it all behind. All those Mac computers don't matter now. All those iPhones do him no good. All that money is no longer his. Steve Jobs has passed from this life where he was suddenly ushered into another realm of existence where he must answer to the God who created him. Now, I'm certainly not making any pronouncements about his eternal destiny this morning, except to note that in all the praise for his justly celebrated accomplishments, never once in the media did we hear the slightest reason to think that he was a Christ follower. And whatever has happened to him, wherever his spirit is today, it has nothing to do with his great wealth while he was here on earth. If he thought the world would uh, disappear into nothingness or he would disappear into nothingness, he was wrong. If he thought he could achieve nirvana when he died, he was wrong. If he thought his life on earth was the only life there is, he was wrong about that. His earthly wealth could help him here, but it provides for him no more. And so it is for all of us in this world. How foolish we are to think that the little bit that we amass in this life matters at all in eternity. Will the God who made the stars be impressed by our big boat? Will he be blown away by our big house? Will he be impressed by a fleet of expensive cars or even a private jet? See, God laughs at the puny pretensions of the high and mighty in the world today because Jesus knows our poverty. He knows our riches as well. And he sees our faith when it's lived out in hard times. He notes the prayers that we pray through our tears. He hears the desperate cries for help. And oddly enough, these hated Christians in Smyrna were the richest people in town. Years ago, I heard it put this way, you'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all we have, then we discover that Jesus is all we need. And most of us have a hard time figuring that out, but because the Christians in Smyrna were so poor, they learned early on that Jesus was really all they needed. And that's why Jesus says, but you're rich, you're rich. 
No person on this earth is poor who has learned to depend on Jesus Christ alone. There's a poem that applies this truth to all of us, and it goes like this. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gain while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours I spent on my knees. I never knew till one day by a grave how vain are the things that we spend life to save. I did not know till a friend from above said, Riches is he, richest is he who is rich in God's love. So Jesus knows our poverty, but he also knows our enemies. Look at verse nine. I know the blasphemy of those who are opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. So who are these people whose synagogue belongs to Satan? This fearful description applies to some Jews in Smyrna who join forces with the pagans to accuse Christians of treason against the Roman Empire. And in taking sides against the church of Jesus Christ, they were in effect taking sides against the Lord himself. And here's an important truth to remember. God does not take lightly those who attack his people. Because Christians did not worship idols, but instead worshiped a God who is invisible, they were sometimes called atheists, and their opponents heard rumors about their eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord at the Lord's Supper, and so they called them cannibals. Because Christians were despised and marginalized, they seemed like a virus in the body, a sort of disease that needed to be removed from the city of Smyrna, and so-called Jews attacked them, but they were not really Jews at all, they were Jews in name only. And this whole story reminds me of uh, St. Paul's description in Romans chapter two where he says this, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. Now these words would have shocked the Jews in Rome and they ought to shock us as well. Paul's not being anti-Semitic since he was a Jew himself and yet he's making the point that racial or ethnic identification doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. And we should note in passing that religion itself remains sometimes the greatest obstacle to the spreading of the gospel today. Religion blinds a person to their need for God because it leads us to think that we can contribute something to our own salvation. Millions of people have a religion based on superstition. They put their trust in some outward factor in hopes of heaven. And such people will someday be sadly disappointed. But there are many others who trust in inherited religion. You know, I, I, I'm a Christ follower because my dad was the youth leader at our church or my mother was a Sunday school teacher. And they act as if salvation is inherited like the color of our eyes. But it doesn't work that way. No one else can believe for us. We have to believe for ourselves if we want to be a true Christ follower. 
So never be surprised when even other religious people may hate you because they hated Jesus and ultimately crucified him. But here's the fourth point in this passage. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Look at verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. (laughs) There's some really interesting learnings in this passage. First, our Lord has perfect knowledge of all that is about to happen to us. What surprises us? What surprises us in life does not surprise him at all. Our Lord has perfect knowledge of everything that is about to happen in our life. Secondly, the Lord sometimes allows Satan to attack us. How exactly did Satan uh, attack some of these believers and put them in jail? Well, no doubt he stirred up the Jews to collaborate with the pagans in order to incite animosity so that the Christians ended up in jail having no way to refute the false accusations made against them. But then third, this passage says, our sufferings are limited by the Lord. Jesus tells the church that this severe persecution that they are experiencing will only last for a time. Some of us may think, hey, that doesn't sound so bad. Let's see how we would feel um, after we have been fired from our job beaten senseless, our house plundered, our spouse leaves us, our children are physically attacked. That's the kinds of things that were happening to these Christians. It might not seem so small to us then, but you know what? There are believers all over the world today who are experiencing just those kinds of things for their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of us in this room have been suffering for a while. We've been in the furnace of affliction for longer than a short time. For some of us, it's been years, maybe even a lifetime. And I freely confess that I cannot explain why some people seem to suffer much more than others. And while it is true that into each life some rain must fall, some folks seem to have this perpetual monsoon pouring over them. After thinking about this for a number of years, I've concluded that all our speculations are just that, idle speculations that really don't help us. But let's rest our soul in this one fact. The God who made us knows us. The God who made us knows our limits. And, all, and though we are often pushed to that limit, he knows what we can endure and he always provides a way out. That's why he says, don't be afraid. The Lord knows what he's doing, and he's doing it, and he'll accomplish his purpose in our life. But then finally, Jesus says, be faithful. Be faithful. Verses 10 and 11. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. There's one important fact that we must not miss here. Jesus never promises to remove the trials of life from us. He never says to the church at Smyrna, hey, just believe and everything's gonna be great. Jesus was not a prosperity gospel preacher. That heresy has infected the church around the world today and created a generation of Christians who are materialistic, who are worldly and spiritually anemic. And because we have no theology of suffering, we're not ready when the suffering comes. 
because we believe your best life now, uh, we have no strength to face some of the terrible struggles of life that some of us have to face. Jesus never says, believe in me and I'll give you an easy life. Instead, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. No doubt many of the believers in Smyrna had paid the ultimate price for their faith. Having followed Jesus in life, they are now following him in death. And it is against that backdrop that we see the importance of Christ's title for himself. Back in verse eight, this is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead, but is now alive. Those are extremes, aren't they? First and last, death and life. But it reminds us that Jesus is Lord of the extremes. He is there at the beginning and he's gonna be there at the end. Because he conquered death, death itself cannot conquer us. To use John R. Stott's phrase, death has become a trivial episode for the people of God. I ran across a quote recently from Max Lucado about what death means to the Christian, and this is what he said, in heaven we'll all remember the day we died with the same fondness that we remember graduation day. See, many modern Christians have never heard of a man named Polycarp, but let me close with this story because it's a great illustration. The early believers knew all about Polycarp uh, because he was one of the first well-known martyrs of the Christian faith. In his youth, he was a disciple of the apostle John. For many years, he served as bishop of the church at Smyrna. And during one great wave of persecution in 155 AD, when a mob demanded his death, the Roman officials tried to save his life. They offered him uh, repeated chances to deny his faith in Christ. He refused each time. And when given one final chance to save his own life, he repeated words that echo across the centuries. He said this, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme the, the king who has saved me? So as soldiers prepared to nail him to the stake, he refused, saying, leave me as I am, for the one who grants me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on the pile, unmoved, without the security that you desire from nails. And so the fire was lit, and Polycarp was burned to death. And as the flames consumed him, he was heard to pray, I thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed me worthy this day and this hour to take up the cross of Christ among all these witnesses. And you know, when I read his story, I say to myself, where do you get people like that? I do know that God has his polycarps all over the world today. They are brave men and women who will not bow the knee to false gods, who will not swear allegiance to someone other than Jesus who will not give up their Christian faith, who will not return to their pagan ways, and they would rather die than surrender what Jesus has given them. But death itself has no power over the believer who remains faithful. We may die, in fact, we're all gonna die someday. That's not the question. The greater question is, will we be faithful to God no matter what? Few of us will ever be called upon to do what Polycarp did. For most of us, the sufferings that we endure in this life are far less dramatic. 
The pressure is more subtle, the temptation's harder to spot, but the call from Jesus remains the same. Fear not. Be faithful. Because heaven is awaiting us. Death may come, but it cannot take away from us what God has given us. The world gives fame, and then it takes it away. So be it. We are rich today and maybe poor tomorrow. We have a job today and maybe tomorrow we don't. We're healthy today and then cancer strikes. We have a happy family today and then tomorrow it may fall apart. Our friends say they love us and then they disappear. All of those things happen, but to those who stand strong in the midst of trials, the best is yet to come. So be encouraged, child of God. Buckle up and get back in the game. Don't run from the troubles of life. For those who are faithful will receive the crown of life and we will reign with God forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the first and the last, the one worthy of all of our praise and honor. You give us breath and you hold our future in your hands. When the world around us seems like it has all the power, how good it is to know that you are in charge. And when we feel battered and hopeless, how good it is to know that from life's first cry to final breath, you command our destiny. So today we hear the words of this letter and we simply pray, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us and to the church and help us to continue to trust you, the one who died and came to life again so that we might spend eternity with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.